Father, we, we worship you this morning knowing that that is true. You reign. And you rule. And that reign and rule extends over all of creation and over everything that you have created. And Father, we celebrate that this morning. And as we open up the book of Joel, just listening to this wise man's wisdom, as he looked out on a, on a barren land, I pray that you would just give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Central, if you're a guest of us. So glad that you have joined us as we begin a new series where we are going to look, thanks, man, where we're going to look at the book of Joel. Joel is a book with uh, three chapters, and we're going to spend uh, four weeks on this book. Now, if you have a, an auditorium Bible, you can turn to page 909. That's page 909. For those of us who don't have the Bibles in the auditorium, we're going to find this book sandwiched between Hosea in the Old Testament and Amos towards the end of the, uh, towards the end of the Old Testament. Um, let me just say this by means of background. Um, you see, I'm sitting today, I'm sitting because I'm gonna teach. What that basically means is tune in or you'll miss it. Um, we do have a website where the message is there. Some of you, with some of these concepts, you're gonna need to go back and you're gonna need to listen to this again and again and again. And I'm doing this because I, I'm concerned I'm concerned because I look at a nation and I look at a world where nature is raging and the nations are arguing. I'm doing this because I'm concerned with what I read of the Christian's response to nature and the nations. And I'm doing this in spite of the fact that for 25 years, I have stayed away from any book that has anything to do with the doctrine of eschatology, which for those of you who don't know is the doctrine of the future. I don't like talking about this because you quickly get in trouble when you do. A lot of this changed for me at the start of the year when uh, a number of us started to read through the Bible in 90 days. And, and one of the blessings of doing that is you get through it quickly, right? And, and when you do that, you take in entire books, entire chunks, and you get, a, a, in a sense, a bird's eye perspective of a number of themes that when you read through it verse by verse or you know, chapter by chapter over the course of a year, you miss. And, and as I started to do that, I started to discern a number of themes, and God started to birth this series in, in my heart. And, and so I, I'm going here with a degree of trepidation, but with a firm conviction that God has a word that he wants his church to hear. Nature is groaning. Nate has already prayed about California with the wildfires. It is hard to believe that one of the busiest kind of fire brigades, emergency service, fire brigades, we would say, uh, where I come from, is actually the Lapland Fire Brigade, where they are fighting wildfires in Sweden. 
in Norway. Norway is saying it's had more wildfires in this section of time, and more, more than three times that they would normally have in a year. This week, satellites have actually picked up wildfires raging in Siberia. Heat wave is killing people in Europe. We've had the wildfires in Greece. We've had earthquakes. And anybody who reads the Bible recognizes that Jesus talks about nature and nations. Our nation is divided, there is conflict across the world, and we Christians in America somehow find ourselves in the middle of a lot of this. We find ourselves in the middle of it because we live in America, we find ourselves in the middle of it because we are the most generous, lavish church demographic in the world. We have a part to play, and I'm concerned because there's too much doom and gloom and not enough being said about the opportunity that God has given us to make a difference, yes, in terms of nature and in terms of the nations. And so I'm sitting down because I recognize that I get in trouble when I don't keep to my script. (laughs) And, And I'm also sitting down here because when I look at Jesus and the way he taught, he he would have sat. We're going to enter into a season over the next number of weeks where I want you to engage your mind, please. I want you to think. And I want you to think about what is going on in our world and what God requires of you as a follower of Jesus. And I want to suggest to you, you have a far bigger part to play than you think. For some of us, that's going to mean we need to change what we're saying. For some of us, it means that we're going to need to get involved in what is going on. We can't sit on the sidelines and be a follower of Jesus. And in a sense, this is what Joel was calling his people to recognize. Now, we begin in verse 1 with a a general overview that basically is typical of a prophetic book, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. Now, there are 13 Joels in the Old Testament, and we have no idea who this guy is. From reading the book, we would... We would say that he was a southern kingdom prophet, the kingdom of Judah, and from the knowledge that he has of the the priestly system, he was probably involved in the priestly ministry in southern Judah. That's about as much as we can say. We also need to, when you look through a book like this, hazard a guess at the dating. Again, we don't know. Some people say this book was written after Nehemiah and Ezra's rededication. Other people say, no, this was written before the invasion of Babylon. Again, we don't know the dating. Critical, however, for an understanding of this book is what we do with verse 4 and verse 6. In verse 4, it talks about an invasion of locusts. And in verse 6, it talks about the locusts being a nation. So the critical question is, okay, which is it? Is the issue that um, Joel is dealing with locusts, as in literal locusts? Is it nations or is it both? From the level of detail that Joel gives on the locust invasion, I think it's both. I think that when you read the text, Joel is staring at a land that has been devoured by locusts. And so in that moment, he's not so much a prophet as in a seer looking to the future. In this moment, he's actually looking at what is. 
And he's trying to interpret this. It's not as if in the first chapter of this book that Joel is seeing things about the future. For the most part, the first chapter of the book is Joel looking at what is and trying to make sense of it. And this is rather fascinating because there's only three chapters in Joel, and yet when you look at his content, a lot of his content is found in other prophetic books. So we have a choice to make here. We have a decision to make. Okay, is Joel writing before some of these prophets, and his influence was so significant that they kind of took his words and put it in their material because God's message was consistent? Or is Joel writing after those other prophets, looking at what has been said in order to determine what is going on? That's where I land on this. Joel is looking at what has happened in his nation and he is going back to what God has said as a means to interpret it. Now, isn't that what our job is? When it comes to what's happening in the world, when it comes to what's happening in our nation, when it comes to even what's happening in our own life, aren't we forced sometimes to go back to the Bible in order to make sense of it? Of course we are, and that's what Joel is doing. He's looking at a barren land, devoured by locusts, and he's saying, okay, what is God doing in our land? And secondly, the second part of the book, where is this taking us? And through the Spirit of God, he just recognizes that discipline and judgment is coming upon that southern kingdom of Judah through the invasion of Babylon. So if there's a... If there's a point, a big idea to the message today is simply this, look. From looking at Joel chapter one, we can say this. We offer wisdom in the wasteland when we watch what we say and how we pray. We offer wisdom in the wasteland, wisdom in times of destruction, in times of calamity, in times of difficulty, in times of suffering, when we're very careful what we say and we're very careful about how we pray. We need to be careful about what we say. That this is Joel's emphasis can be seen from verses two and three. Have a look at verses two and three. Hear this, you elders. Now remember, in the Hebrew language, there is a difference between listening and hearing. Hearing here means obey it, obey it. And then the next part says, listen, all who live in the land. This listen here kind of means discern. Discern. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Now do you see why I think he's looking back on something? Simply to say this is all forward, misses the point. Have you ever seen anything like this? And the answer coming back is no. So then he says, Tell it to your children. I love this. We're called to listen twice and speak once. Why? Because God's given us two ears and one mouth. Some people are too quick when it comes to calamity to open their mouth rather than to discern what is going on in the world. It's part of the problem with evangelical Christianity. We're too quick to speak. We're too slow to listen. But the other part of this is what do you tell your kids when they actually see your land wiped out? Well, what do, you, what do you see? If you read on from verse three through the end of verse seven, you start to see descriptions of this locust plague that are really specific. 
And unless you've actually experienced something like this, you will never be able to comprehend what this is like. Let me give you an example. In 1889, a locust plague swarm invaded Israel, and it was said to cover 2,000 square miles. And get this, one square mile, each mile, okay, contained 120 million locusts. Have you ever, he says, seen anything like this in your lifetime? And the answer coming back was, no, they hadn't. It was devastated. It was wiped out. Imagine you're a person of faith, and you've just seen your house burned down. What do you tell your kids? God is good, right? All the time, God is good. You're a Christian in Haiti. It was a 2010. Thousands of people are dead. And you've got Christians in America standing up shouting, this is God's judgment on our nation for our idolatry. What do you tell your kids? Like what he said, tell it to your children. Let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. What do we tell our kids? See, the emphasis here is on hearing and discerning what is going on right now. With things going on in our nation and in our world, parents have the responsibility to tell it to your kids. Tell it to your grandkids and your great-grandkids. What do we tell our kids? What do we tell our kids when it comes to natural disasters? What, What do we say? When you look at Joel, there's one thing that Joel is pretty clear about. Joel says, look guys, look kids, the creator judges. It's uncomfortable, this one, isn't it? Verse 15, alas for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. See, now he's starting to look forward, right? The day of the Lord is near. Babylon is gonna come, it's gonna invade. It will come like destruction. What's that word? From. From the Almighty. God made it abundantly clear to his people that the cost of their disobedience would be disaster. What do you tell your kids when disaster comes? Joel says, kids, God's judging. He would have done that because Deuteronomy 28, 38 was pretty clear. It said, you will sow much seed in the field, but you will harvest little because locusts will devour it. That's what he told the kids. See, Joel interpreted what was going on in his nation by looking back at what God had said to his covenant people. And this local tragedy was, this locust plague was considered to be punishment for covenant unfaithfulness. Joel says it comes from the Almighty. Now, if you're here and you've got any compassion at all, I would guess that you don't like this. I've said it over and over again. There are many parts of the Bible that I don't like. I don't like this. But here's what I can't do when I don't like something, is deny it's there. It's there. And so what I will do is I will go and I will jump into the New Testament. I'll say, okay, what what does Jesus say about this whole idea of of God coming and and judging like a people group? what, What does God say about that? Well, we can look at Luke chapter 13 for that. Now, there were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. A bit gruesome, right? 
Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. All those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. See what Jesus does here, he broadens the guilt. And then, specifically addressing Jerusalem, says judgment is coming to you, Jerusalem, and we know it would. AD 70, temples destroyed, judgment comes. Disaster would come upon, upon Jerusalem, Jesus says, as a consequence of God's judgment upon their sin. Again, it's uncomfortable. But this discomfort allows no room for denial. As Joel looked at the devastation that happened through the locusts and would soon come through the invading Babylonians, he understood both of these tragedies coming from the Almighty himself. Joel said, that's what we tell our kids. Covenant obedience is really important or discipline comes. And since God chose us as a people, he disciplines us as a people. So is that it? it, it when it comes to natural disaster, is, is that all we do? We just say, well, it's just judgment from God. I mean, let's be honest. We're pretty good at doing that. But is that all we do? It, when you study a book like this, it's really important when you see verses like this. You, you then kind of take a step back and you say, okay, let, let's go to the whole council of scripture here. Because there's clearly a part when you read the Bible that does say, hey, this kind of judgment on a people, usually, by the way, God's covenant people, Judgment's coming to us, by the way, next week. We're going to look at the topic of judgment next week. That's what I mean. But we can't get away from the fact that God judges his people, and sometimes corporately. But is that all we can say with this? And the answer is no. When we take a step back and we look at the whole council of Scripture, we recognize that not only does the Creator judge, again, usually as covenant people, we also can see that there is a complex interplay between the creator, the creation, and the created. When God created the world, when the creator created, he actually gave the ability to the creation and the created to bring forth life. And so when you look at a topic like this, in a book, you sometimes have to take a step back and say, okay, this is what Joel is saying right here, right now for this people, but what does the whole council of scripture say? And what we recognize is there's a little bit more to this. The Bible talks about not only the creator judging, the Bible talks about the creation groaning. The creation groans. So Paul in Romans 8 says this, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in the hope that creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. You see, there's a sense in which what we're experiencing right now is partly because the creation has been subject to decay. In other words, the consequence of sin in Eden through Adam and Eve is a consequence, has a consequence and an impact on creation itself. Creation groans. That's why the Apostle John in Revelation is given a vision where it's not only our groaning, our tears that will be 
passed over, passed away. It is also the fact that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. The hope and the expectation of a new creation has been fulfilled even for creation itself. And so when it comes to disaster then, we can say at this point that there are obviously two types of disasters in Scripture. The first are those directly related to God's judgment, usually upon God's covenant people. I hope you always hear me saying this. The second are those not related to God. It doesn't specifically say that disaster is from God, but the product of a creation awaiting its own redemption. Creation groans. It moans, it rages. So what we see then is that God created the world good, but he clearly didn't create it perfect. It has been impacted by the events of Eden. Sin has affected creation as well as the created, and all of creation suffers as a result. And again, it's at this point that the relevance of Joel comes to the fore. Joel sees the effects of the locusts, He predicts the Babylonian invasion as God leading his people where God wanted those people to be. And so we discover something about the mystery between God's rule, his reign, his goodness, and the way he's created us to lead. We discover that God uses not just the created, you and I, to achieve his purposes, but he also uses the creation to achieve those purposes as well. God is leading his people where God wants those people to be, and God uses secondary agents, the creation and the created to make that possible. So think about this. James chapter one says that when we suffer, the trials that we go through, the difficulties we go through, God uses these difficulties to make us more like Christ. And there's a sense in which the world itself through its own struggle is the very pathway through which God is going to make the world new. So we have this idea when we look at the world that God uses nature and God uses you and me. God uses nature and God uses nations to lead the world to where God wants that world to go. And if you think about it, isn't this what Jesus said? Matthew chapter 24, Jesus said this, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that, they are not, uh, that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Now here we go. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against nation. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these things are the beginning of birth pains. Nature and nations the creation and the created. Given freedom to bring forth life, the abuse of that, the consequence of sin with that is that there is pain, suffering, and death. But the promise of scripture is that God's goodness still works to bring the world where God wants it to be. Now, how does this work? I don't know. I don't know. I don't think anybody can know. But we know this, God is sovereign, God is in control. He has given us and the creation the ability to bring forth life. And there are times when we do that in an inappropriate way, but we cannot say that our misuse 
will ever result in God's will not being done. And we cannot say that God's will is going to be done without any thought or consideration for what we and the creation do. Both work in harmony, both work together. That's the mystery of creation, mystery of suffering. So is that it then? When we look at the scripture, we say, okay, look, disaster happens because God judges, mostly as covenant people. And disaster happens because creation is groaning. Is that it? We would have to say, no, there's more to it than that because the created have a part to play as well. Suffering happens because the created defile. The created defile. And this is the part we often overlook. Isaiah 24, 5 and 6 says this. The earth is defiled by its people. They have disobeyed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse consumes the earth. Its peoples must bear their guilt. Who bears the guilt? Created. Therefore, earth's inhabitants are burned up and very few are left. See, here's the message of Isaiah and the prophets. Moral evil and natural, natural disaster, they connect. They connect. Let's think of it like this. When leaders out of greed bleed poor countries dry, when they ignore their responsibility to their people, disaster happens. When out of stupidity we ignore conventional wisdom and we start to build houses on the slopes of Mount St. Helens, which is an active volcano, or we build houses in desert riverbeds, remember the video I put up a few weeks ago, or in floodplains, or on insufficiently secured coastal areas, guess what happens? Disaster happens. And we can't point the finger at God for that. That finger, those fingers, are pointed squarely and firmly at us. Disaster happens because the created ignore law and order. The created ignore justice. And such disasters are the product either of unintentional folly or of intentional neglect of natural law. I find it really interesting just going back and looking at what they call the decade of disaster. How so many of those economically disadvantaged peoples were the biggest casualty of natural disaster? Thought about that? Now again, there are many reasons why that is the case, and the solution isn't easy, but injustice is certainly at the core. We want to be concerned about the peoples of the world. We want to demonstrate our concern for the world itself. We cannot ignore injustice. So yeah, God created the world good, not perfect. But one of the reasons it's not perfect is also because we aren't perfect. And we have a very, uh, we have a habit, right, of making things worse for both creation and the created. And we cannot ignore that. So this is what the Bible says. It's what we tell our kids. To truly respond to natural disasters in a way that tells our children the truth demands that we listen to the full counsel of Scripture. Yes, there are times in the Bible where God judged a community of people severely. It, but there are also many times in the Bible where God didn't judge people that way and disaster happened anyway. 
Not all disaster is a result of God's judgment. It wasn't in the Bible and it isn't today. That's what we tell our kids. We tell our kids that even creation itself has been affected by the curse of sin. We tell our kids that we have a responsibility to treat this world right and correctly. We have a responsibility also not to ignore injustice because when we do, innocent people die. Even when nature does what nature does, if we ignore justice, people die. That's what we tell our kids. We don't just turn around and tell our kids as biblically responsible people that God is judging people. That's irresponsible. But unfortunately, that's often been the evangelical way. So that's what we say. What I love about Joel is he starts with this and he wants the people to accept responsibility for the fact that, look, we've abandoned the covenant and God has judged us. But what I love about Joel is he doesn't leave it there. When you get from verse 8 of chapter 1 on, he starts to get them into what is called that mourning phase. And I don't mean morning cup of coffee, I mean morning with a U. The idea of lament. And this takes them into the idea that, okay, look, what we tell our kids is really important. What we do in this world is really important. But guys, in a situation like this, how we pray is even more important. Have a look at what he says in chapter one, verses 13 and 14. This is what he says. Put on sackcloth, you priests, and mourn. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come spend the night in sackcloth, you who minister before my God. For the grain offerings and the drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. They're withheld because the locusts have devoured everything. Declare a holy fast. This is what he's calling them to. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. When disaster happens... Believers accept their responsibility, but then they fall on their knees before God. The term he uses here is sacred assembly. Other parts of the scripture, is, it's called a solemn assembly. A solemn assembly is basically a gathering of God's people where God's people, during a specific time of fasting and prayer, seek the renewal of their relationship with God through acknowledging their sin, asking for forgiveness, which basically means the Bible's word for that is repentance, by repenting of their sin and asking God to restore them in a right relationship with him. And when that happens, blessing typically follows. At very least, it's the blessing of God's presence. So when you look into the scriptures, you often see the prayers in this season ask for so much more than that. That's what they did. They basically entered into a solemn assembly, a time of prayer where they asked God to work. Now, how do we pray when we are not praying for ourselves, but we're actually praying for a nation? Now, of course, our nation is ourselves. How do we pray? What do we pray for? How do we pray when our nation, we recognize that we're part of a nation who's making choices that is leading us down an end that doesn't bode well? How do we pray then? How do we pray when we're part of a family group that we see members of our family, our own kids sometimes, making decisions that we think don't end well? How do we pray? What do we pray for? Do we pray for God's judgment to come? Or do we pray for something else? See, when you personalize this, you personalize this in the context of your own family struggles, maybe with a prodigal child, rather than in a nation, you'll find that you've 
pray typically for something slightly different when you pray for your own family than when you actually do for your a nation. We're far quicker to call for judgment to fall when it's on someone else. We're far quicker to plead for mercy when it's for us. Now, this is what I'm getting at with this. Joel calls the people to lament and to intercede. And this whole idea, the Jewish practice of the praying lament and intercession is based on a reality that in situations like this, you're praying for your nation. Okay, you're praying for, some, uh, for someone that you know. It's not you, you're praying for someone. You know the path they're on is gonna lead to destruction. You're not asking for God to answer the prayer, you're asking for God to respond to it. And there's a profound difference. I wanna say this, far too many of our prayers in the Western world, in the Western church, are driven by the question of how God answers prayer. How God answers prayer. Now to answer a prayer, typically means that you've prayed something very specific, you've made a specific request for a specific act based on a specific need that you want a specific response. Now how many of you have heard this idea that when we pray, God answers in three ways, right? Yes, no, or wait, right? Yes, no, or wait, God answers prayer. Sometimes he says yes, sometimes he says no, sometimes he says wait. But the Jewish idea of intercession and lament, especially when you're praying for your nation, you're praying for people who's, who are on a path that you know the end isn't good, isn't based on the idea of God answering, it's based on the idea of God responding. Jews believe God doesn't just answer prayer, he responds to it. There's a difference between answering and responding. You see, a response is a reaction that often produces dialogue and information. Dialogue and information. Now, if you were to think about a profession of people who are really good at responding to questions rather than answering them, wouldn't we all think of politicians? The best people at doing this at not answering a question are politicians. Now, why don't politicians answer questions? Usually because they don't know or because they know the answer all too well and if they give it, they're not gonna be reelected, right? That's typically the way this works. When you think about the occasions in scripture where God's people are wrestling with God in prayer and there's this dialogue, think about Abraham and Sodom and Gomorrah. Think about Job himself. They ask God a question, why, why, why? God doesn't answer it, does he? Think about Job. Job is a guy who is said at the beginning of the book to be righteous. And the adversary says, you know what? He's righteous and he's doing right because everything is going good with him. But you take the shield of protection away from him, God, and I'll tell you what, he won't be so righteous anymore. And God says, okay. Do anything to him, but don't touch him. So this guy loses everything. All his money, but more importantly, is all his family. And then three friends turn up, right, and try and tell him, hey, it's something to do with you, or it's to do with the worldview, or it's to do with something else. And Job says, I'm not having it, I'm not having it. And we get to the end of the book, and in the end of the book, God shows up. And Job looks at God and says, God, I've got a question for you. Can you please tell me why? Why did I have to lose my kids? Why did people have to suffer? Did God answer that question? 
He responded to it. He said, Job, let me take you on a tour of the universe. He shows him the world, and he said, Job, can you tell me how this world hangs there without a string? And all of you physicists would be able to answer that one. Job couldn't. And then he takes him somewhere else, and he said, Job, can you explain to me why this is like this, or why this is like this, or why this is like this? And over and over again, Job says, no, God, I can't. No, God, I can't. No, God, I can't. No, God, I can't. And then God turns around at the end and says, Job, because you can't do that, I cannot possibly begin to tell you how I run this moral universe. See, when it comes to suffering, when it comes to the way that God works in the nations, I want to suggest to you that God doesn't answer our prayer. He responds to our prayers in dialogue and through wrestling with the issues. God controls this world, not simply because he controls everything. He controls this world in relation to you and I and in relation to the creation itself. God dialogues. He dialogues because he's a re- it's a relational being who controls this universe, not a law. He dialogues because creation isn't in control of its own destiny. He dialogues because creation isn't chaotic. These are all theories for natural disasters. He dialogues because we don't live in a world where good and evil are opposites, the force that created to make a choice about whether we're going to follow the Jedi or Darth Vader. That's not the way this works. He's in control, and part of that control is using secondary agents like the creation and you and I to achieve his eternal purposes. When we intercede for our nation, we are basically saying we accept the responsibility to engage with you to change the course of history. That's why God doesn't answer prayers like this. He responds to them. I turned you earlier to Luke 13, difficult passage in so many ways, where Jesus seems to say judgment is coming on Jerusalem. I want you to to look at what Jesus does immediately following this teaching. He tells them this parable. Look at this. Remember the context, judgment coming on Jerusalem. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. How many years is Jesus minister? How many years? Three. This is a commentary on Jesus' ministry, right? For three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this tree in Jerusalem from the religious establishment and I haven't found anything. So cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? I love this. Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and I'll fertilize it. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Jesus says God's gonna bring judgment on Jerusalem. The response of the religious establishment to his own ministry shows that that is going to happen. But there were a group of people who basically in this parable stood up and said, okay, God, we know this is coming, but please don't call time. Give us more time. Think about Abraham and Sodom. God, you're not really going to do this, are you? What if there are 50 innocent people? Would you do it then? What if there were 20 people? Would you do it then? Okay, well, what about if there were 10 people? Would you do it then? 
What if there were five? What do you do then? Uh, have you noticed that Abraham stops at five? What would have happened if he'd have asked for one? See, when it comes to tragedy, when it comes to disaster, when it comes to the state of a nation going rogue, what a believer does is we don't ask for God to call time. We ask for God to give us more time. Give us more time. God delays judgment when we respond. And in delaying judgment, of course, we are recognizing, just as the disciples did, their responsibility to go into that nation, into that world, and to continue to preach a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And what happened in Acts chapter 2? What happens? Peter calls on Joel. Why Joel? We'll see this in a second. Why Joel? There's a part of this of Joel that's fulfilled on the day of Pentecost where the Spirit of God was pulled down on all people, young and old, male and female. But there's another part of this, the judgment would still come. Peter calls on that. That's not fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. That's filled a lot later when the temple would be destroyed. But think about this. Think about how Christians typically respond to natural disaster. Okay, let's just try and broaden this a little bit. What do you think our typical response is? Do you think the more typical response in the evangelical church when it comes to disaster is to ask for God to call time or to state that God has called time or to ask for God for more time? Which do you think is more typical? Is it not a statement that God has called time? I think it is. There's a guy by the name of T.E. Fairtime who basically has studied a lot of this about God in the world and with creation, and he basically has come to the conclusion, and I agree with him, that if we truly engage God in prayer, seeking a response, our prayers and our lives and our churches can be far more effective when a country goes off track than we think It can be. This is what he says. I am amazed about how often the language of fatalism creeps into our thinking about the future. It is commonly thought that it does not make any difference what we do about, say, justice or the environment, that God has the future all mapped out and that what human beings do is ultimately irrelevant. But it should be made clear that the future is partly settled and partly unsettled. It is partly settled, yes, there will be a new heaven and a new earth, but the future is also unsettled. Why? Because our words and our deeds in this world make a difference in the shape of creation's future. If you truly understand intercession and lament, that's what we see. Another guy by the name of Miller basically says this, because my father controls everything, I can ask and he will listen and act since I am his child. Change is possible. Hope is born. Let me ask that question again. As we look at a divided nation and a fractured world, is the church in America quicker to pronounce judgment, to say that God is calling time, or to seek a response? Do we call for time, or do we call on God to give us more time? Sadly, throughout history, Christians have inevitably and invariably called time. We've been quick to say that disaster has happened because God is calling time. There's a guy by the name of D.K. Chester who has studied every natural disaster from the year 1900 until 2008. I'm pretty certain that that includes all of us in this room. 
Every disaster that we've ever experienced is probably covered in this study. And Chester shows that in at least 72% of all of these events, and those are the only ones that he could find material on, okay, 72% of those responses were couched in religious judgment language that basically said, God is calling time. And he goes a little bit further. This is what he says. In the period between the emergence of Christianity as a major world religion in the early 19th century, the explanation of major disasters that eclipsed every other was that these phenomena were either manifestations of divine power sent to punish human sinfulness, in other words, God had called time, or, and or, the imminent end of the world. Does this ring a bell? Don't tell me I'm the only one to hear this. See, typically what the church does is when there's natural tragedy, rather than go before God on our knees and say, God, we realize that this world is in decay, that it is groaning awaiting its redemption. We realize that there are people who are suffering because the created defile, and we ask you to give us more time. We assume the responsibility to step up and to jump in. Rather than do that, we say, oh God, here you go, the end is coming. God's judging Haiti because of that pagan idolatry. It's more complicated than that. You know, something happened to really shift the response to this, and it was something that happened to the church. Isn't this true that our attitude to suffering often changes when we experience it? It was Lisbon, Portugal in 1755. November the 2nd, which is All Saints Day, on a Sunday morning, 50,000 people died when an earthquake shook Portugal, Spain, North Africa, and the vast majority of casualties were Christians in churches. There was a Jesuit priest from Spain who basically stood up and, and explained this as God's judgment on the Portuguese church for the fact that they weren't more supportive of the Spanish Inquisition. And then our very own John Wesley stood up and said, no, this is God judging the church because they were too supportive of the Spanish Inquisition. And meanwhile, there were a group of younger theologians who were sick to the back teeth of this language who went back to the Bible and thought it has to be more to it than this. Some of us here need to realize that our judge, what our judgment language is doing to our kids. We need to realize what it is doing to a generation who didn't grow up in the church like we did. It is pushing them further and further away from a good God. It's more complicated than that. And I think as we look at a nation that is divided, and we see everyone, loads of public figures calling down judgment on this person, on this person. What we need to recognize that when judgment falls on a nation, the church of Jesus Christ falls to its knees and asks God for more time. And in that, God does a work on our own hearts. And he causes us to realize that we are the solution. Because we have been given the gift of hope and life for the world. If we truly believe that judgment is coming, if we truly believe that God controls the nations, if we truly believe that Jesus is going to come back, I want to suggest to you that what we do, according to Joel, is we basically don't say God called time, we fall on our knees and we ask God for more time. 
How can I support this from Joel? I want to look at this one last scripture, Joel chapter 2. You're not going to see it on the screen. I just want us to see it on our, in our Bibles. Joel was responding to a natural disaster, and he's saying, look, this comes from the Lord Almighty. And here's what we need to do in a season like this. He says, we need to fall on our knees, and we need to press into God and ask God to do what? Joel chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. You see it? Here's a prophet who in chapter 2 and in chapter 3 knows that the nations will rage. He has come face to face with the covenant sinfulness of his very own people. And rather than being self-righteous and calling for God to send down judgment, he calls upon the people to fall on their knees so that God may relent and spare them. That's what we do with disaster. We step in and step up. I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of a movement that when disaster strikes, we're the first to fall to our knees and ask God to spare the judgment. I want to see Jesus as much as any of you, but not at the cost of people dying without hope. If we truly believe this message, we will go into the world when disaster strikes, and we will proclaim God's goodness, His grace, His mercy, and His favor. We will declare that this world is messed up, that the creation groans, that we make it worse through our actions, but we will also proclaim the goodness of God who has poured out His judgment on sin on His Son, Jesus Christ. And why do we do this? Because we want to see God relent. We want to see people come to faith in Christ. And of course, if that is what we're supposed to do, then what it basically exposes us to is this idea that there's far more to being a follower of Jesus in the world today than coming to church on a Sunday, singing songs, listening to a message, and then go home. It tells us that there's far more to our prayer life than simply asking God to answer our prayer list, our shopping list, with a yes, no, and a maybe. It tells us that there's another dimension to this that is so uncomfortable to the Western church that actually exposes us to the fact that you and I have a critical part to play in how things work out. Now I know I'm in reformed heartland with this and God's got everything under control, but we can't possibly read the Bible and ignore what is called conditional eschatology. The idea that you and I have a part to play that we have to step into tragedy and step up to the plate, calling out injustice when it's wrong and calling people to a higher standard, including ourselves. But where does it all begin? It basically begins with you and I. God is calling us in this season back to him. He's saying, listen, I don't want your sacrifices. I want your heart. I want your life. Let me ask this question as we wrap it up. Where are you at with that? On August 26th, we're going to do a baptism at the State Park. Last year, there were 99 that stepped up and made a public profession of faith. I think for many of us, it's often where it begins. It's no coincidence that 
Joel calls God's people to repentance. And, and in the Christian church, baptism is that public profession of our faith. It doesn't save us, but it says, hey, I'm in. For some of you, that may well be the, the, the next step that you need to take. You need to go public and say, God, I'm in. But for all of us, what it basically means is that we grapple with the reality that one day Jesus Christ is going to come back. And we can rejoice in that, but in rejoicing in that, it causes us to assume the responsibility of taking the hope and the life of Jesus to the world. We cannot be a follower of Jesus in a day like today and keep our faith public, our private. It has to go public. There is no such thing as a private faith in the resurrected Jesus. Church, I want to go to God in prayer, and I just want to invite you to do what you need to do. If we truly believe the end is coming, then God's given us a responsibility. That responsibility is to respond. Respond, just respond as the Lord is leading you to do so. Father, we thank you that when we read your word in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, you promise that our personal suffering, our personal pain, all of our mourning, all of our tears will be wiped away. And we look forward to that. That same book also tells us that there will be a new earth where the groaning of your creation will be gone once and for all. We look forward to that. But Father, until that time comes, won't you please, through your Holy Spirit, stop us from falling into complacency? Won't you, through your Holy Spirit, stir us to step in and to be willing to intercede on behalf of our nation? Not so much calling for you to call time, but for you to ask us to give us more time. God, move in our hearts. And as our nation and our world moves forward to the end that you have ordained for it, May we leave this place in hope and in expectation that you will use us to change the world one life at a time. In Jesus' name, amen.